Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, greetings once again, everyone. It's Don Johnson with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Well, today we are going to be giving you our final session from our summer annual meeting in uh, in Ankeny, Iowa. So I'm a little surprised, I guess, uh, the way we spread it out. I shouldn't have been, but uh, I'm a little surprised that we are here and into the new year before we give you the very last of our workshops. This one is uh, led by Jim Berg. Uh, he doesn't need much introduction to most of us in our circles. Uh, he is uh, very skilled in the area of counseling and uh, taught me many things. I really appreciate Dr. Berg's ministry. This session is called Notepad Discipleship. So it was offered in a workshop session, and those uh, breakout sessions that uh, sort of occurred simultaneously at our meetings in the afternoons. Uh, I wasn't able to attend all of them. Uh, I wasn't able to attend this one, in fact, and so I'm looking forward to listening to this one myself as we edit it and get it ready for publication. Now, like several of these workshops, I do have to remind you there are two spots in the recording where the mic cut out and there was a break. I think I was checking it this time. It was, it was almost 20 seconds where it was just silence. So we've cut the silence out, and you will uh, you will notice there will be an abrupt stop, and then Dr. Berg will pick up talking again. So I hope it's not too disturbing, uh, but, of course, we value what Dr. Berg teaches and uh, would like uh, for you to uh, enjoy it as well. So that's uh, that's what's going on there. I don't want to spend much more time talking in the introduction, but I do want to give you our regular commercial, reminding you to subscribe to our podcast. I hope that you'll go ahead and subscribe. The podcast is always free. Uh, we, If you become a paying subscriber, we will offer you uh, access to frontline articles when we interview uh, those authors, and that's one of the features of our of our podcast. We have some coming up. They'll be starting again next week. So if you're a paying subscriber, you'll be able to access that article right away. This this workshop article uh, podcast does not have any article attached with it, so so there's nothing extra with this one. But we also, uh, if you will subscribe on a yearly basis, we will include the Frontline Magazine subscription as well. So just wanted to make you aware of those opportunities. You can uh, get those benefits from it, but also the blessing of being able to support the ministry of the FBFI. We really do appreciate your support, and uh, there are some great things going on in our ministry, and we do hope that you can uh, join in with us to accomplish the work that the Lord's given us as an organization. All right, so that's all from me. I'm now going to turn everything over to Dr. Berg, and I hope that you enjoy uh, this session with him. And it was that was another uh, example of notepad discipleship. You use whatever. I don't know how many times my discipleship takes place in a in in a Hardee's or a restaurant with a napkin or a, a, a notepad. <clears throat> so I want to just share with you. Um, some things that I, I, I've used and not that you have to use them. I, I just, I just want us to understand, um, you, you don't always have to have a book and a workbook in front of you or, because sometimes that just doesn't happen that way. 
um, and you don't have a handout with you that you know that normally you would do. So I, I just want to encourage you: use whatever you've got in front of you to help people. Um, and you see on your notes. So sometimes you have to explain the story of redemption or sanctification in a coffee shop, at someone's dining room, or even in your office. What can you send with people uh, after you have ministered to them so that they can review the truths you covered? If you don't have a handout prepared, my favorite tools are a napkin or a notepad and a pen or a pencil. My ideal, of course, is a whiteboard. Boy, that's heaven if you're discipling somebody with a whiteboard. Um, after I'm done uh, drawing and talking with them, this is on the whiteboard. I have them take a photo of the whiteboard with their phone. I take one too, print it out, and put it with my other notes of the session so I know what I've covered. You don't have to be an artist. You do have to have a clear picture in your own mind about how truths fit together and be able to succinctly present them in a short time with minimal resources. And and there may be different ways that you uh, want to present salvation, but uh, with the men and women that we work with and even with uh, church members, I, I want to start off with uh, what God's intention was at creation and uh, how man was designed to image God. And there are all kinds of views about what the image of God is, but I, I just pick out some that they can relate with relationally. Uh, we were made in the image of God. Uh, God and the three persons of the Godhead have relationship one with another, and God created us with that ability for relationship. That's not like the animals. Um, a couple of dogs don't come come in at night um, and sit around the, the fire and uh, exchange stories about the rabbit that got away and and I know where he is tomorrow. You know they they don't have this uh, they don't have this relational um, uh, thing. Now they, they may run in packs and there may be certain kind of distress barks you know or whatever, but but it's not relational and it's and and animals are not rational. If, if animals were rational, then beavers would not be still making dams out of sticks and mud. It would be still reinforced concrete if they were truly rational people, um, rational animals. But they're not rational. They're, um, man is created emotional. Uh, as we have emotions, like God has emotions. God, God loves, and God hates, and God joys, and and we were made to reflect emotions, and God made us creative. Um, I don't know how many times when I was dean of students, I'd be talking with a day student, a married day student, and um, he would come in because he's under conviction. He's really not leading his family well, and and uh, and he'd say, you know, my dad wasn't uh, my dad wasn't a believer, or my dad was a mediocre Christian, and and uh, we never had any kind of Bible time at home, and I've just never seen this done, and I just don't know how to do it, and I'm not a creative person. And I said, well, let me push back on that a little bit. I, I'm dean of students here. I know that everybody's creative. If you want to know, if you want to sin, you can figure out a way to do it and figure out a way to cover it up and figure out how to blame it on somebody else. Don't tell me we are not creative. All of us are creative. I watch people sin. I know how creative they are. I sin. I know how creative I am. And, and the real issue is not uh, how to do things, as much as we got to get down why we need to do things. And if you know why to do something, you'll figure out a way how to do it, if you're really convinced about the why. And I use the illustration of uh, Pastor John Vaughn, uh, most of you know him, um, You know, came home and uh, after the fire in his house um, that uh, burned Becky and his wife, and um, 
let's say that he came home during the fire and finds the kitchen engulfed in flames and he doesn't say, I don't know how to put out a fire. I've never taken a course in, a fire, in firefighting. I've never gone to a seminar in, t- in firefighting. I don't know how to do this. He does know why he needs to do something. And he may not do it with all the finesse of an experienced firefighter, but he'll pull, he'll pull drapes off the windows or whatever. He'll start beating that fire and getting his, his, his wife and his daughter out. He would do something. If you know why and you're convinced about the why, you'll figure out a way how to do it. And often it's not an idea that comes from your own head, but, but you read, you start being motivated to read and listen to podcasts and things. I, I've got to know how to do this better. And, and I hope we walk away with that. I've, I've been challenged more in my own discipleship. I share the gospel often, and, and, um, and yet I, I gain some ideas. I do the same thing in restaurants, and I, um, but there are other things I can be doing. If I, if I know why, I'll figure out ways how to do that. And um, so we are creative people. That's all I'm illustrating there. Um, and then I talk to them about how uh, in... in um, fellowship with God before the fall, man flourished. I love that word flourish. It just, it's like this tree just, and all the fruit is there, and God wants you and me to flourish. He made us to flourish. When we flourish, we bring Him honor. Um, and that happens when we're in fellowship with Him and we're gaining wisdom from God. We have satisfaction, and I just do some preliminary things with that. And then I, um, uh, the fall, when we broke fellowship with God at the fall, disobeyed God, everything changed. And uh, death came into the world, and I, I share the passages that go along with this about what went wrong, and then how God through Christ restores that. And uh, you may have a different diagram. I'm not really happy with the one I put here, but... Um, but I write, I write the verses down at the side uh, because I want them to be able to take something with them um, when I'm finished with that. But, but when I'm talking to believers, um, you know, I talk about that fall and being restored. But then I say, here's, 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 our, here's the problem we, we're in. And I'm, I'm not an artist nor the son of an artist. I have a daughter who's an incredible artist. Uh, she has an MFA, Master of Fine Arts in Art. That's a terminal degree in studio art. Her art is phenomenal. Her, her paintings sell for thousands of dollars. I mean, she, she's an incredible artist. But she, she didn't get that from me, I'm quite sure, <laughs> I think. Um, but but so, so I, I, I use this illustration. I draw this wedding cake, and I say, let's say that, um, that this is um, w- one of these um, baking reality shows, and it's a bake-off for the world pastry chef, and, and so this, uh, this woman creates um, a wedding cake for her daughter. This is her magnus opus. This is the best thing she's ever done, and it is stunning. And uh, she's going to present that the next day. And um, the night before the, the, uh, the final uh, judging, um, her, her uh, competitor uh, sneaks into that kitchen and vandalizes that cake. And there's no time to redo it. So on that day of judgment, she uh, of the of the when the judges go at it, she's going to be judged based on what has been vandalized, and her real skill, her honor has been stolen from her, her glory has been stolen from her. Um, she is not going to get the praise she deserves. 
And this is what happened in the fall. God had this stunning creation. And Satan vandalized that creation. And now God is judged on what's left. And people look at all the evil in the world and they say, how can a good God allow that? And how can a good God do this? And I don't believe God would do that. And, and God is being judged on vandalized creation. And once we come to Christ, then the whole uh, goal is to restore that creation where God is now honored by what other people see. And by the way, this person is flourishing. And, um, and that's going to be through that sanctification process where this person worships God and he images God and, he's, and he uh, serves God. And I use this illustration with the men and women in Freedom at Last. And I say, this is why we're here. We're here to cooperate. Our, our change principle is we do what we do because we are what we are on the inside. And to change what we do in all of our choices, our decisions, we have to cooperate with God to change what we are on the inside. And that's why we meet here Friday night. So we can learn how to cooperate with God to change what we are on the inside. And... Um, and this is a discipleship ministry. And I tell him, you can be, um, you'll hear me talk very little about sobriety. Um, not that that is important. When somebody in a testimony time says, as they did last year, uh, last week, last Friday night, two people stood up and said, I have been clean one full year as of this week. You know what we do? We clap. Man, we do a lot of clapping. Our church is doing more clapping than it's ever done. And... Uh, I'm just waiting for the day when I can say, praise God, <laughs> you know, but, um, but there is, um, uh, but I say, you know, all of us know we can be sober and miserable, and they all go, and we can be sober and immoral, we can be sober and be thieves, but we can't be like Jesus and be any of those things. So what we're here to do is to learn how God wants to change us to be like Jesus, where he gets honor from our lives, and we enjoy the satisfaction and the wisdom and the joy and all the fruits of God's spirit that he wants us to have, and that's why we're meeting here. And I'll just throw in one other thing. It's important to teach men and women that you're discipling, not particularly if they have a life-dominating standard, they're into pornography or gambling or or cutting or, or whatever they're in. We we can tend to focus on the sobriety aspect, and we do want them we do want them to be clean and sober, and and how to handle temptation. Well, and we walk through Romans 6 and we teach them how to, to do this. But we have to, ha- we have to teach them how to handle trials too. We spend a lot of time in James 1. Because you can be clean and sober and really handling temptation on, on your average day to day basis and doing really well until mom dies. Or your best friend overdoses on a fentanyl, um, shot. Or something else happens, or, the, or your, your your work play. So it's not enough just to help them handle temptation. We also have to teach them how to handle trials, because the biggest trigger for an addict is a trial. Why? Because it brings a, a, a it brings a mood that he wants to alter. So I, I tell him, you, you uh, um, I'll tell you how to know when you're in a trial. 
Just check your emotions. If you're sad, I mean, if you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're ashamed, if you're guilty, if you're um, uh, you're dealing with uh, frustration, all of these things, you're in a trial. None of us, somebody comes up and says, you know, God just laid it on my heart to give you this um, this new car. We don't say, oh, that's a trial. You know, we, we have a, we have really bad. And that's how I define, help them define between bodily, I mean, legitimate bodily feelings, like a down feeling when you haven't had any sleep for three nights. What, what are you saying in your mind? What are the words? You know, when I, I used to ask people, um, uh, what are you thinking? You know, after I describe something and they'll say, oh, nothing. Well, that's, that's not true. Nobody thinks about nothing. Nobody sits there without. So I, I began asking, well, tell me what words have been going through your mind while I've been saying that. Oh, well, yeah, I've been thinking, my, my dad, he can't get away with that. That is not right for him to do that. And that's why I did this. And, well, I want to know the words. And, and the words are going to drive those emotions. They're in a trial. So I say, all you have to do is keep track of your emotions, not that you you um, you live by your emotions, but keep track of them. They're great indicators of what's going on in your head. And uh, so then we then we counsel the words that are going on in their heads with truth. Um, and I can't remember where I was going with that, but it's all right. I might get back to it. It's it's not in my notes here. Um, So the the whole point of, of this little drawing, and you can use whatever you want, is that God is not getting the honor and glory he deserves as our creator and our redeemer. And and this just kind of gives him a picture. Oh, so that's why we're doing what we're doing. God wants this cake to be a blue ribbon exhibition of what he can do. I have a brother who's who's not a believer, two years younger than me. He is is one of the top three motorcycle designers in the world. Has got the um, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award from the motorcycle industry. It just the, the guy's incredibly wealthy and incredibly hateful of God and anybody who will talk to him about God. But I'll often put up on not often, but when I'm discussing this, I'll put up um, some pictures of his bikes. And, I, you know, I've got a lot of men in addiction who, I mean, bikes, that's a big thing. So that, that grabs their attention, and I show them this, and I show them several of those. And I'll say, my, my brother got his start <clears throat> um, by restoring bikes that didn't work. Just for a Honda dealership, he started doing that work. And eventually he opened um, a, a, um, a company he called The Time Machine, and he started getting... Um, uh, opportunities to restore vintage bikes. And he's restored, I don't know how many for Jay Leno. Jay Leno collects vintage bikes like you and I might collect postage stamps or quarters, you know, or something. And, uh, and, and Denny just does some amazing, amazing work. And then his, once he does a new creation, then it's all over the cycle magazines. And, and then his phone rings off the hook. Can you do something for me? Can you do something for me? And I'll say to the group, and that's what God wants to do with you and me. Restore us so that people come up to us and say, how did that happen? I I need that. 
and that brings honor to God. And that's what we're looking for, these restored. Now, you know, out of 100 people that come every Friday night, uh, there probably are 30 or 40 that are really intent upon changing and growing. Those are the ones you pour your life into and your time into. Um, and the rest, you don't, you don't, uh, you, you don't, um, you're happy they're there instead of an AA group that night. And, um, but I, but I tell them, you know, our, our key, for our key passage is 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7, uh, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And so our curriculum walks through those. I, I think that's the most complete portrait of Christ likeness anywhere in the Bible. Because the context is about full-grown Christian maturity in that Second Peter 1. The kind that gets you an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. The kind that if you have these things, you will not be falling. The kind that if you have these things, you will not be barren or unfruitful in the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I, I tell I, when I first am acquainting them with that in the newcomer session, the first time, I say, see that little word diligence up there, giving all diligence? That means a lot of intensity. That, that's, that's, that is a word that could come, that is what you would do in a gym. And, and Peter says, you need to put some effort in this. God, God has done his part in providing things and will help you in all of this and give you grace. But he expects your cooperation in this. You're not going to get zapped. I don't have any pixie dust that I can sprinkle on all of us and we become godly. Uh, there, there is a cooperative venture between God and us, and that's God's idea. That's not ours. And so Peter says, you've got to work at this. And I say, you're welcome to come here Friday nights and not do the curriculum. And you can. I hope you get energized and encouraged and excited from the class lessons and the fellowship. But, but coming and just listening to the class lessons is like uh, watching an exercise video and getting all pumped about that and never going to the gym. The real change in Christ-likeness doesn't happen, into Christ-likeness doesn't happen on Friday nights. It happens Saturday morning, tomorrow morning when you open your Bible and you start doing the Bible study, start memorizing the scripture, and then it continues on Sunday morning when you do that, and then you come to church, and then it goes on on Monday morning when you open your Bible and you do this. This is where the change comes. This is that building those disciplines, those, and want them to become habits. That's not a behavioral thing as I mentioned this morning. God made us that way. Um, so I, I, I really want them to get a vision of what this restoration looks and, and why. This is about get it, God getting the honor that is due to him as our creator. And we dishonor him by living vandalized lives when they could be changed with God's help. Um, when I'm doing this, this is an actual counseling session uh, where I was uh, in, in our conference room at our church and showing this on the, on the board. And as I said, I take a picture of it so I know what we covered, and he takes a picture of it um, so that he can take it home. Um, and I, I'm just saying, figure out some ways, find the main truths that you like to talk to people about, and figure, a way, figure out a way to illustrate that. And, and what you're doing is, is also teaching them that it doesn't take a lot of tools on their part to disciple somebody else. Everybody's got access to a notebook or a, or, a, or a napkin and a pen. And if they understand and, and uh, really grasp what you, you've done, you've, you've given them a tool they can use at work at a break with somebody. Or, um, 
And I think probably the thing about uh, the vandalized cake is probably has the biggest impact uh, for understanding why, what is going on here. We were, were vandalized creatures. And an enemy did this. And he's robbing God of the glory that, that it, God is due. And we want to cooperate with him to change what we are for the glory of God. And he will help us in that process. So any questions about that so far? Just the use of diagrams or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I work it up ahead of time. And it, it's usually after several iterations, as I've talked to the people, I've realized, you know, I, I could have made that more clear this way. That's why that one about salvation, I don't think is as clear as I, as it is now, but, but, uh, yeah, you have to have it, you have to have something worked up ahead of time. Mike? What's that? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yep, that's right, that's right. We all, we all have fingerprints, but they're all in little different swirls and in unique swirls. And, and, but there are some things that are common to man that need to be understood. And, and then in the, in the real discipleship element is where I get to next. And that is where you see on the backside that brief little diagram, losses, lies, and lusts. Um, I've, I've probably used this more than I've used any other diagram um, in, in helping people. This is from James 1, 14 and 15. And James says, um, uh, every man is tempted. Um, and every is, pretty, every is pretty inclusive. Every man is tempted this way when he's drawn away of his own lust, strong desires, and enticed. And then lust, when it is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And he says, be not deceived, my beloved brethren. This is how it works. So I'm, I'm confident, because this is common to man, it's every man is like this, that I, I, um, I use this so ex- extensively in counseling. And I, you've got a handout that I use um, uh, on that. And, and by the way, that page, uh, or a lot of that, is, is in this little booklet, Help I'm Addicted. Um, Shepherd Press has a whole series of these um, little topical things. Help, I, I've, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. Help, my son just told me he's gay. Help, I, I mean, there are, there are scores of these books. And the thing I like about their New Growth Press has a bunch, um, the CCEF works with them, and, and, and they're helpful, but they're only 18 pages long. And, and they've got a general overview of this, but Shepherd Press has a model that it's, you, it's gotta be 60 pages long, and of course it's a smaller book, but the first chapter has to have this kind of content, the second one has to have this, third one has to have this, and then you have to have homework. And I, I love writing that for that, and they said we've been um, holding the one on addiction for you, so please, please do it soon. Um, and uh, that, so I walk through that. I, I walk through this whole thing that I'm going to talk to you about in in this, and it has homework for how to use it with uh, with other people. Um, uh, the, the top paragraph in that exploring losses lies in lusts. 
Um, says biblical counselors counsel people, not diagnosis. We don't. I, I don't counsel bipolar. I don't counsel anorexia. I counsel people who are thinking a certain way and doing certain things because they want certain things. And I don't. I don't try to convince some. I, I, I can't tell you how many um, addiction strugglers have. Uh, have intersected the, the mental health world, so they come with a whole plethora of of diagnoses, and and they'll say, I'm, uh, you know, I've been diagnosed bipolar, and you know, how how can you help me? And I'll I'll just say, T- tell me what you were sharing with the doctor, the psychiatrist, or the mental health uh, clinician when uh, when they made that diagnosis. So, well, I was having this problem, and I was angry, and I was doing this, and I was doing that. Well, every one of the things he mentioned, I'll write those down. And I'll, I'll turn the paper around and I'll say, every one of these things you mentioned, God has answers for. So let's figure out what, what God wants you to do with that. And, and then uh, they'll say, um, well, what about my medication? I'll say, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I'm not going to play doctor about that. I, I just want to help you grow to the point where you and your doctor can decide, you know, I don't think I really need this anymore. And that's up to you and your doctor, but we're going to deal with these issues here. And please do not go off your Medicaid. You got all kinds of problems, not only ethically, but but they're going to have some some uh, backwash from that 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 is introduces a whole other range of problems uh, in your, in your counseling. So, um, Jay, and this whole thing comes out of James one. I've got ten principles I teach through from James one, and uh, as I go through, that's about a twenty four week study. And most of the studies that I do on Friday nights last about 24 weeks. And, um, but they can, people can come in at any time and, and have something uh, and can get something from it. But if they're there the whole time, they're, they're getting a worldview of how to, a theology of how to handle trouble. Um, so losses, um, uh, you're, um, up on the screen is a little bit different diagram than you have. But losses, we are both sinners and sufferers and experience many losses as we face the trials of life. You and I have, uh, um, I teach them that uh, trials are the, the, um, the hurts and hardships we face because we live in a broken, fallen world with our own sinful nature and we live among others who sin against us because they have sinful natures. So I want them to understand those three sources of temptation. We, we say that every Friday, pretty much every Friday night as I begin, say let's review what a trial is. Trials are the hurts and hardships we face because we live in a broken, fallen world. And I'll say, have you experienced any of that brokenness this week? It comes in the form of car trouble, um, uh, pipes, water pipes breaking, uh, all kinds of things. Just because we live in a fallen planet. Hurts and hardships we face because we live in a broken, fallen planet with our own sinful natures. Have you faced it any way this week where your sinful nature created a hurt or a hardship for you? No, no, yeah. And I say, and because we live uh, with others, we live among others who sin against us because they have fallen, broken nature, uh, fallen natures. Have you experienced that this week? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just want them to know there's, there are three main causes the Scripture teaches us where the source of our troubles, our hurts and hardships are coming from. Um, 
So the losses, what trials is your counseling facing right now? Um, and this is so important in just sitting down and listening to your story. I'll sit down at a fellowship time, um, at, which is a, we have a meal afterwards for anybody that wants to stay. And we, we have, so I, even a newcomer, I'll say, um, uh, how did you hear about us? That's a non-threatening question. How did you hear about us? Um, oh, I, I came on the bus from the mission. And I uh, said, great, where are you from originally? Oh, I'm from upstate New York. How long have you been in Greenville? About, oh, one guy last week said four days. <laughs> and, uh, of course, he's homeless. That's why he's at the mission. And for some reason, he got here. I, I don't ask him what brought him to Greenville. Um, in many cases, they're waiting for an opening at Overcomers Center. It's a resident facility with, that Miracle Hill, a, um, a faith-based organization, has. And they're waiting for that to open up. But all of those are non-threatening questions. And and if if he's answering that, he's pretty open with me. I'll just say, you would you would you mind sharing me your story? I'd love to hear how you got where you are. And and pretty much because they want sympathetic ears, and I don't, I don't say that I'm not throwing rocks at that, but because they want they want somebody to listen to them, they'll tell you their whole story. And and you know that they've told it many 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 times because it comes off very rehearsed. I mean it's. In fact, the next week they may start telling you the same story over again. It's exact same words. Um, but from that, you're starting to gather what, what are the losses this person has faced? Just like Heather's testimony um, uh, last night. I, I got her permission through the pastor to, uh, I printed that out and read it and gave it to our people on Friday night. I want them to see what the gospel can do in changing people. And uh, so you, you, would, you would go through Heather's testimony and pick out, and so I even asked them after I read the testimony, I said, all right, what losses has Heather experienced? Well, she never had a dad. Her, her, she was from house to house. She was probably sexually abused. It's kind of veiled in there, but, and, and, and they just mention all of these losses. And so is there any, why, why would Heather start using alcohol and drugs? Well, to mask all of that pain, to uh, forget the things that have happened, they're, they're telling me what is going on in Heather's life. And um, so what, what lies do you think, while she was doing all this, what lies was she believing about God? Uh, he's, she's not even thinking about him. He doesn't care, or if he, if he does exist, he doesn't see me. Um, and they'll tell you, about, about he, he doesn't care, God doesn't love me, God is judging me. Um, what, what lies do you think Heather is believing about herself? I'm just damaged freight. I'm trash. I'm no good. I'm a whore. I'm in, you know, whatever. And what do you think, what lies do you think she believes about how the world works? Well, you got to look out for yourself. And, and these men and women can give you answers like that. And they're, they're a whole lot more open than most church folks. They really, I love their testimonies at church. They're used to, they're used to giving their testimonies at AA. You know, and so at our Wednesday night testimony time, every once in a while, Pastor has a Wednesday night testimony time. And, and one lady, dear little lady, and uh, homeless when she first came to us, and um, but and and she was really strung out on meds and could hardly put a word, uh, you know, a sentence together. Uh, but we loved on her, and um, she she got into a sh- women's shelter and. And uh, 
But she stood up in church a few months after that and said, I tell you what, God's really helping me here at this church. She said, my brother, he, he lives with me and he has been, he's a pain in the butt. And she said, I wanted to, he did some things this week. I want to kick his ass. Said that right in our independent fundamental Baptist church. I love it. Because that's where these men and women are. And now, if, if one of our teens got up and said that, we'd probably have some different conversations. But, but, um, and then she said, well, maybe I should say that, you know, and, and, uh, everybody's kind of like, ah, and I'm thinking, praise God, she's honest and, and she's expressing, I mean, she, she is talking about some victory this week. She didn't tell her brother off what she used to tell her brother off. And you know what you do with that? You clap. You know, you celebrate every win, no matter how small that that win is. I'm telling you a whole bunch of stories. I'm sorry. Old old people do that. You know, they just tell stories. Um, but I, so I want to know what lies they're believing about God, about our, about themselves, about how God's world works. All of that is unbelief. There's something that we're believing that is not true about God and His ways and who we are. Identity is a huge thing for them. Uh, because they've been told you're, you're, you're a felon, you're a sex offender, um, you're a whore, you're bipolar, you're, um, uh, whatever their identity has been given or, or gender today. And I say, you know, your, your identity is not what anybody has called you. Your identity is not what, what you call yourself. Your identity is what God calls you. And before you come to Christ for salvation, you're called a child of wrath. You're called an enemy of God. But after you come to Christ, you are a child of God. You are a sheep of his pasture. You are his bride. And he delights in you. You've got a lot to clean up in this bride. But he chose you as his bride. And he's, he wants to work this out. He, he wants to work through you and restore you. But there are lies about God, lies about themselves, lies about how God's world works. And that's where we have to start showing them from, like from James 1, here's how the world works. Here's how trouble works. Here's what, here's what God tells us to do. Um, and I teach on the battlefield of our temptations is, is in our heart. And then we talk about lust or sinful desires. Um, I had a young man approach me at the mission. Uh, I was there for a graduation of one of the uh, resident groups. And uh, he came up to me. He'd been coming to Freeman the last couple of times. And he came up and he said, Jim, I don't understand something. I love it when they call me Jim. I don't like to be called Dr. Berg. They just call me Jim. I love it. They don't even know. I tell them, you don't have to call me doctor. I don't even know CPR. Just, you know, my name is Jim. I wear a name tag on Friday nights that says, hell, my name is Jim. And I'm winning life's battles through Jesus Christ. That's, we're not, my name is Jim and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, but Daniel came up to him and he said, I don't understand something. He said, I, I, I do like weed. He said, now, while I'm at the mission, I'm, I'm not smoking because they won't let me stay if I do. But, but he said, I, I don't understand something. You could put a whole pallet of heroin bricks Right next to me here, and I would not be tempted to use any of it, but I would be tempted to sell it. And I said, well, Daniel, tell me why you would want to sell 
heroin. And he said, instantly, he said, no, understand what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to get to his desires. I'm not going to really help him unless we nail down every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own strong desires. What is his desire? So uh, instantly he said, money. He said, I can make more money on one weekend than you can make in a year. I didn't tell him. I don't, I don't doubt that. I've been in Christian education. <laughs> no, we're, we're well taken care of. I don't. Um, but I said, okay, Daniel, why do you want money? And instantly he said, because I want a fast car and nice clothes. And he said, does God have anything, God have anything against fast car and nice clothes? And I said, no, he doesn't. Selling heroin to get it, he does have a problem. And he said, I know, I know that, but if that wasn't the case, is that all right? And I said, well, it depends on why you want it. Why do you want? See, I'm, I'm trying to drill back to wants, desires. I said, why do you want a fast car and nice clothes? He said, he said, man, I've thought about that. And he must, he must have stood there 15, 20 seconds. And finally he said, Respect. I want people to notice when I drive by. I want people to notice when I walk by. I want respect. And I said, Daniel, that's the, that's the driving sinful desire of your heart. And until and, and and by the way, if I didn't drill down with Daniel to that point and just deal with him about, well, you can't be selling drugs. That's illegal. How can you be a Christian and do un- illegal things? He still has a desire of respect that's driving him. He'll figure out some other way to get it. Or, or saying, well, Daniel, you know, if you're selling drugs to other people, that's not loving your neighbor the way you ought to love your neighbor. And, and therefore it's disqualified. And we can approach it on all those levels, can't we? But James says you're driven by the desires of your heart. If I don't get to that level, I really don't help Daniel. And then what does the word say about how do we change what we love, what we want? How do we change our desires? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to find out sinful desires or supersize legitimate desires. I, I can't tell you how many times in Christian education, Noah could probably talk about this too, uh, any of you in Christian education. Um, there are, you know, parenting is a wonderful thing. You want your kids to follow God and serve God. But then in Christian education, well, in all education, there are what we call helicopter parents, you know, and they're hovering over their kid every place they go. And then there are Black Hawk attack helicopter parents. They don't even wait for the issue to come up. They're in your office demanding that you, you know, whatever. These people are wanting a legitimate thing. They want good for their kids, but it's way out of proportion to what God wants them to, and they're violating all kinds of other scripture commands to get what they want as they've supersized that legitimate desire. So when I'm counseling, I, w- I want to know these two things. If, if this is where, when, when, when I have these lies and I have these desires, and James says, then when lust hath conceived... So what, that the picture is of a union of a husband and a wife. And something is born out of that union. And so what is the union? The union is with my lusts and my desires um, coming together with my will. My will says, yeah, let's do it. Then a sin is born. And when that sin is fostered and when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. So... 
I always want, I don't care who I'm counseling about whatever problem, and I'm not trying to make, you know, if somebody comes in and says, you know, I've got, I've got a question about whether I should buy this car or this one, you know, I don't go into all of this. But when we're talking about life-dominating sins and broken relationships and the need for reconciliation, I always want to get to this level. What is it that, and, and, and these husbands that are so oppressive with their family, and there are more of those in our churches than we know. Everybody looks wonderful when they come to church, but eventually when those kids start start getting really angry about that, they start telling what's going on, and you find out all this garbage that's going on at home. And dad wants that respect, and he doesn't want any mouthing back, and he's, he's, he's heavy-handed and mean-fisted. And when you drill down to that, I remember one guy I was working with, uh, we, we walked through this, and I said, so, I'll call him John, that's not his name, I said, John, what is it that you're wanting when you treat your wife this way and your kids this way? He said, respect. And they're supposed to respect me. I said, well, you get respect the old-fashioned way you earn it. And to, to, to get honor, you know, yes, there is authority structure in the Scripture, but that just means they have to give you compliance. But if you really want honor, you earn honor, and you do that. Honor is a result of the fear of the Lord, and they don't see that in you. They don't see that you respect your authority in heaven. If they see you respecting God and honoring God and wanting to go God's, they'll follow you to hell and back. But you're not leading in respect. You're not. He's been released from his job because uh, he, well, he actually is in, was in the military and had reached. His, he was he was mouthy. He was in a desk job, but was constantly mouthy with his superior. Well, you, they they finally put up with him for a while, and then and then they retired him, or they they I don't know what the words are, but they retired him early or something, and and he lost most of his pension and and all, all of that kind of thing. But it was because he wouldn't obey his authority. He wouldn't respect his authority. And I said, why? I mean, you're setting an example to them of what, what's, what's authorized in your house. You may as well put a sign over your dining room table. Disrespect is tolerated here in this house. Because you're authorizing that by the way you're, you're responding to your authorities. Um, so I want to drive down to this level of desire. And and uh, the deception. Um, I'll walk you through a couple of things here about that real quickly. This is all in, in this little book. I, shameless promotion again. If I didn't believe the principles in it, I wouldn't. I wrote that because I didn't see anything in the format that I like it. So, um, so I, you know, I walk through losses make life hard and hurtful, but they cannot destroy us. Is it one of the lessons of Joseph? And you got to find out if they even know Joseph. Because I would say one time, you know, like David said in the psalm, when one guy said, "Who's David?" You know, don't know David. I said, "Do you know? Do you know about Joseph in the Old Testament?" Uh, no, I never heard of Joseph. Well, you know, when Patty was working with one lady. We actually, she is so biblically illiterate. We bought her. A children's study, a children's Bible story book for her to read through just to get the general drift of what was going on in the scriptures. And, uh, um, and, and she was 
wasn't a reader. Patty was on the phone with her every day for a little while, um, reading through the Gospel of Mark with her and explaining what that what, what that is. They would cover one chapter a day. And she did that with Mark, and she did that with a couple other, uh, I think she went through James with her. And, <clears throat> and and you just stay with people a long time, especially if they're, if they're biblically illiterate. Um, and losses, and, and so one of the lessons of Joseph is where I was going with that, is that, is that other people can make your life difficult, but only you can destroy your life. Nobody else can destroy your life for you. That's your choice in how you respond to what other people are doing. And they may be making life very, 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 very hard. And we'll walk through that. We'll be with you in that. But that person cannot destroy you. I want to help you with your own heart where you don't destroy yourself in the middle of all that. Um, so there are several lessons that I draw from that. Four lessons, and, and they're in the booklet. Behind every fall is the pull of our desires. James said this is the way everything is. I, I really tell him you've got to watch out for discontent. And that's true for all of us. I tell him regularly, watch out when you start complaining and whining and are discontent, you are headed for a fall. Why? Because they're already in a negative mode. mood. They don't like the way stuff is going. Secondly, behind every fall is belief in a lie. Lie about God, as, as your notes say, lies about ourselves, lies about how God's world works. And lesson three, behind every fall is a choice to believe lies and to satisfy our desires, our lusts, for relief or joy in our own way. Um, on your notes, um, I should have mentioned this earlier, but down at the bottom of page one where it says lust, a lust, strong desire is often a natural human desire that has been supersized by wrong thinking or is being gratified in disobedience to God. When our sinful desires and supersized legitimate desires motivate us to choose what we want apart from God, we sin. Sinful choices bring more losses and our lives disintegrate spiritually, morally, emotionally, relationally, cognitively, and physically. According to James 1, 14 to 15, this is a universal dynamic. Every man and repeated sinful behaviors and the resulting emotions become habitual. They keep us enslaved to sin and rob God of his glory. This disintegration is both predictable and preventable. And so I, I use this. Our emotions often expose what our strong desires are. So have your counselee ask him, ask himself, and you can do this in counseling. What's under what circumstances am I most likely to get angry? People don't get angry unless somebody's keeping them from something they want, or they've taken something they want to keep. And it may be their honor, their respect, their purity. I, I'm not saying these are bad, bad things to want. Um, but anger is always about. Some injustice where I'm not getting what I want and I should have it. And he had no right to take that away. Um, under what circumstances am I most likely to become anxious? Because anxiety is always a fear of losing something I want. 
peace of mind, security, um, social uh, ease, you, you know, whatever. But this situation takes away my my. I, I'm I'm not in control. I don't know what people are going to say. I don't know what they're thinking. I'm, I'm right now going just finishing going through lesson four of the exchange with a Thai Chinese Thai young man who's who's Buddhist background, and he's got. He knows that there's something here in Christianity that isn't. He's been coming to freedom at last. I started working with him. We've gone through all four chapters. He's not come to Christ yet, but when I get back, I'll start working with him again. Um, but he's just really nervous about not fitting in, and he's really anxious. And he, he's coming because he wanted help with his anxiety. Well, I can't. I, I can help him think through some things a little more objectively. He's very subjective in his thinking. I mean, there's some things you can do even for an unsafe person, but I can't really help him overcome his anxiety. And I've talked with him about this until you understand how safe you are in, in, in under God's care, no matter what other people are doing. And that bridge has to come first before there really is a solution to that. Um, so under what circumstances am I most likely to become anxious? And under what circumstances am I most likely to despair and want to give up? So anger is saying, I'm not getting what I want and it's not fair. And anxiety is saying, what if I don't get what I want? And despair is saying, I'll never get what I want. But it's all something I want that's driving those things. Now, it's not always anxiety. There is a protective fear on a fallen planet. I don't like getting close to the edges of tall buildings on, you know, 50-story. We were in Singapore a few years back, and the couple we were eating supper with lived on the 50th floor of this high-rise apartment. There were three high-rise apartments next to each other with, with a bridge going between the apartments, about a city block long. Maybe not quite that, but it seemed like that. You know, and... and you walk out there, um, and you know I'm I'm a bit anxious. You know, fifty feet, fifty stories down is a long way. But I can go to heaven from fifty stories as well as I can a car accident on ground level. Um, but there is a fallen planet. There are certain things that are that are destructive that we need to have a protective fear about. But when that controls us. When that controls me and I, and I, I'm not gracious to my host by going out and seeing the sights he so badly wants me to see, then my fear is controlling me. And I can't, I can't do that. I have to trust God with my life. I, so, well, wonderful. I could, I could be in heaven in 30 minutes. This is wonderful, you know. And Patty would go with me. We wouldn't have to do this alone thing for a while because she's up there too. Um, And then lesson four, repeated sin leads to the death or the loss of something. Every, every time I give in to those lusts with a sinful response, I create more losses for myself and for the other people around me. Um, the conclusion on the back of that page, according to James, we haven't addressed the heart of the issue until we've identified and are helping counselors replace sinful desires and unless we have identified the lies counselors believe when they sin and combating them with special, specific truths from God's word. Uh, let me say one more thing. I, I hope I don't raise more snakes than I kill here, but um, 
But I purposefully, in my counsel, don't talk about idols of the heart. For, for this reason, in all of the sanctification passages of the scripture, that's not used as a metaphor. Romans 6 through 8 has nothing about idolatry. Colossians 3 has nothing about it with respect to the human heart. Um, except as a category of a bunch of sins. It's not the mother sin of all the rest of them. And I think I, I think I can exegetically show that idolatry in the New Testament, every case of it, is literal idolatry. Even the covetousness at the heart of that is idolatry. Why do we offer these gifts to this idol? Because we want something. It's covetousness that drives to idolatry. And I find, particularly with the men and women, I'm, I'm, they don't get idolatry. You know, that's a whole foreign concept. And I find a lot of a lot of church people don't get it either. And then the people who think they got it go on idol hunts. When God always puts the issue be, that the, the, the problem is between me wanting my way and God wanting his way. I want to keep it at that level. I'm bipolar on that in that respect. Jesus said, either you're with me or you're against me. And, and um, it, you're either following, my, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your ways, I want you to forsake your ways and go with my ways. Everything is, it's, it's all me against God is where my battle is. And I don't want to confuse that with idolatry talk, with idol talk. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't get up in, in conferences, counseling conferences, with my brethren in that and, and start a debate on it. I, I do in my classes because I'm teaching counselors and I want them to think a certain way or at least be exposed to a certain thing. But, um, but I, I don't use idols of the heart for that reason. I, if, if even Jesus, when he's talking to the church in Thyatira and all these other churches where Satan's seat is embedded, he doesn't talk about idolatry. He, he says, you repent and do the first works. Or he says, repent and, or I take away your light, you know, or, or whatever it is. But it's, you, you and I have a problem right here. And he doesn't talk about your idolatry of your wealth or your idolatry of your, um, whatever. He just talks about, you have forsaken me. And so I want to keep it at that level to make this simple for God's people. And, and I don't want to infuse with that other metaphor. And particularly when I don't find any sanctification passages using that metaphor. And that would have been a choice metaphor in their day and age in particular, but they never use it. The apostles never use it. And Jesus doesn't use that metaphor in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So even John, when he says the last thing, you know, keep yourself from idols, I think he's saying, you know how much of a temptation this is in, in our day and age. Don't get back to that. I think he's talking about genuine, uh, regular idolatry. But that's, say, I and not the Lord, and I just throw that out, and I hope I don't make, raise more snakes than I've killed. But, but in my counseling, I find that if I just stay with what these scriptures are saying in the sanctification passages, and James doesn't mention that either when he's talking about this, so in James 1. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word is entirely sufficient. Help us to become increasingly sufficient in the way that we use it. Thank you for these men and women, for their desire to serve you and love people well. Help them, I pray. May you bring many across our path who do not know you and lead us to some soul today. We pray.
pray in your name. Amen. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.